0: welcome to ask the dean my name is dr ryan gray and i'm the co-founder of mapt i'm joined every week by rachel grubbs the other co-founder of mapt who has 20 years experience in the pre-med and test prep world and by dr scott wright former executive director of tmdsas and former director of admissions at ut southwestern medical school ask the dean is a weekly q a we do live exclusively for our mapt members And this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. Our first question here, could you provide some advice on how to answer the why now part of becoming a physician for non-traditional students? This is a good one. We talk about this one all the time, Scott. There are so many variables at play for non-traditional students that impact timing, such as family, commitments, jobs, relationships, other responsibilities, and the twists and turns of life. Don't forget about pandemics. How do you... Best answer: Why now, Scott?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I know I was processing. Mm. Um, so I think that this it, it's a very good question, and I think you have to answer it honestly. Um, and and this is this question is the second part of the why question. Mm. So, particularly for non-traditional students. Uh, who have a maybe a circuitous route to into medicine to start with. The, the question that becomes important for them is the why question. why, why do you want to do this? Yep. Uh, you've been a computer programmer for 15 years or you've been an accountant for a decade or whatever. And the question is why? You know, why why would you want to embark on this as a as an you know, uh, non-traditional or older student typically uh, and then the then the question becomes why now and, and that's the the, the the gist of this question and I think you have to just be honest um, my you know in, in terms of circumstances that are leading to this point in your life uh, and, and I think a good rule of thumb for non-traditional students is you trace, Uh, the, you trace what has happened in your life. Um, Did you get laid off? And this became, you know, a, um, there was a downturn in the economy. You got laid off from your job. You'd been thinking about uh, med school for a long time. And here was the uh, great opportunity to go back to school and, uh, and get these done. Uh, Did it just become so impactful in your life that you decided I'm, I've i I've just got to go for it, and uh, it's now or never. And so I don't think there's a, there's a one-size-fits-all answer to this question. I think it's, it's very um, circumstantial for the student for what they are uh, experiencing in their life. And uh, there's no magic bullet that says, okay, that's going to explain the why now part. You just have to be upfront and honest about where you are and uh, what's going on in your life and uh and then you know i've had non-traditional students in the past particularly those that had families where uh the kids were small enough uh to where uh mom or dad could go back to school and, and and make this happen with potentially not as great impact uh then i've had students uh in the past who it was it was exactly the opposite the kids were old enough Where they could kind of, you know, they were teenagers. They could kind of take care of themselves and and uh, and and deal with, you know, mom or dad not being around as often, or you know, busy studying or whatever. So I, I, my feeling is that there's not just one perfect answer for this question. Yeah, it's it's very circumstantial depending on the situation of the student.
0: Yeah. And what are your thoughts? Right? a 1000%. The, the first thing that jumped in my mind when I was reading the question is well the best answer is your answer, right? <laughs> like yeah. there yeah. there there is no and, and I I think that's always the battle that we're fighting as, as we're trying to inform students on how to communicate to medical schools, how to communicate to post-bac programs, how to communicate yeah. in the future to residency programs that the the answers to these questions aren't some formulaic thing that is going to make or break your answer. It's your truth. What your truth is, is the answer. And so why now talk about how life got in the way, how the twists and turns got in the way. Talk about what you learned about it. Talk about how you've grown from it and, and give the answer. So I I think, I think students uh, are either a, uh, ashamed of those twists and turns and maybe think that those are failures and that schools will see those as failures and won't want them uh, or B are ha- have a little bit of imposter syndrome or yep. have a little bit of this kind of mentality of well my my journey isn't very special so I need a better why now question and, mm-hmm. and it's just not the right mentality to go through this uh, process. Yeah, I agree. You-
1: it's You know, I think that like many pre-med students, uh, non-traditional students tend to overthink it all Mm -hmm. instead of just being straightforward. Here it is. This is my story. And they want some, you know, they're thinking there's got to be some uh, agenda that the medical school wants to know and is trying to figure out something. And I I just don't think it works that way.
0: Yep it doesn't you don't have to say no. you don't think it does it doesn't yeah, it, it doesn't, doesn't work, work that way all right <laughs> <laughs> uh, next question what would constitute a great reinvention trend for non-traditional students especially with undergraduate gpa less than 3.0 from 5 years ago i doubt i'll reach a 3.0 gpa anytime soon so actually this is a, a fun feature that we're is in our next kind of build of mapped is is this uh, not estimating. What's what's the the word I'm trying to think of? Predicting future GPA and say, oh, if I had if I do 40 more credits at a 4.0. Right and anybody can do that math, but it'll be a fun little addition that we're adding to that map. Yep. Um this is always the question for for non-traditional students who are in this position where the, the pre-med world is so focused on stats and, oh, the, the average GPA of getting into to the schools that I'm interested in is a 3.6 and I can't even get over a 3.0, therefore, I should just give up. Right. What should students do in this situation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing they have to do is stop killing their killing themselves over the past. Mm. They got to get over that and uh the past is the past it is what it is and they have to also stop focusing on that cumulative gpa because yeah. you know in, in many cases you're exactly right they're not going to it's not going to get over 3.0 it's going to be a 2.7 or a 2.8 or something or maybe even less um, and they have to focus in on if they're a post student they have to focus in on that post gpa that specific post gpa that is going to be what they're going to really emphasize in their application. I'm a different person now than I was when I was in school 10 years ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a different types of, I'm a different student. I have better time management skills. I have better, you know, thought processing skills, et cetera, whatever. Uh, if they're not a post-bacc student then they're going to focus on that, that the, the more recent coursework, if they're, you know, if they're still in their undergrad then they're going to focus in. I, I would encourage students to not, not get so focused on that cumulative GPA, but focus in on the more recent work, the last 60 hours, for example, Yeah, and show that there's a trend line there and that the trend line shows good stuff. Um, and uh, that's what you have to focus on. Um, so I think in many cases, um, the, the pre-med students who are, are in this kind of situation really doing themselves because they're, 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 they, they really get discouraged because they're focusing in on that cumulative GPA and uh, they can't, you, you really can't do that. The med schools see the GPA carved up in a gajillion different ways. Yeah. And uh, they're going to look closely at those trends. They're going to look closely at the last 60 hours. They're going to look closely at the, post back GPA or a graduate GPA, and to try to figure out what is your story. And, and that's where I would encourage students in this particular situation, they need to talk about this in their, if not in their personal statement, then in some of the optional essays or uh, somewhere in the application, they really have to get that story across, that whatever happened before, maybe they were just immature and partied all the time and now they're a different person and they're showing that in their coursework and they really have to f- focus the uh, attention of the committee on please look at this as who I, who I really am uh, now and not so much uh, from my previous, my previous uh, uh, academic record. So, yeah. you know, I, I think the first thing is that the student has to really um, kind of get over the things that, uh, the things that really, uh, really shoot themselves in the foot with and uh, don't allow that to discourage you and then and move forward and look at the, look at this, the, the good stuff that you're doing now. Uh,
0: a question that came in as a kind of a follow up to this is does a master's program, will that count towards those 60 hours?
1: No, they're going to be viewed as differently. Um, mm. So when I say last 60 hours, we're talking undergraduate record, the last 60 hours of an undergraduate record, yeah. which is essentially the last couple of years of an undergraduate's you know life. If you're in the kind of traditional pathway of things uh, that's about the last two years. Um, if you were like me, I was on the five-year plan. And so uh, <laughs> I was, uh, uh, mine was like the last two and a half to three years where I seemed to do a lot better and kind of got my head screwed on the right way. And so um yeah. So I, I don't think now they will see the master's program GPA uh, as distinct from a cumulative G, undergrad GPA, uh, et, et cetera. They'll, they're going to see those GPAs and they're going to look at that and evaluate what does that mean? And that's that's the key to uh, uh, the difficulty of understanding a GPAs because they're coming from lots of different majors, lots of different undergraduate institutions. And so the, the admissions committees are really trying to figure out what does this mean in terms of the academic abilities, the, mm. the be, being able to sit in the classroom and gut it out over a long period of time uh, and, and do well. Uh, so that's what they're trying to figure out. Can, can you do that? And, uh, and, is that uh, and, and they'll see that in a variety of, of different ways in the GPA.
0: Do you think it's fair – That's right. If that's the right question, do you think it's fair that medical schools seem to predominantly favor undergraduate classes over master's level classes?
1: Well, I don't know if fair is the right word. Um, I think that I think they're trying to be equitable to everyone in the process. Yeah, and uh, they're trying to figure out who is this student academically. Now, the problem is with master's programs, they're all over the place in terms of difficulty level. Uh, undergraduate courses are often a lot more straightforward. Uh, they Admissions committees know how to deal with undergraduate GPA. They know what it means. Mm. So a good example of that is if you went into a master's program in, in let's say, biology. Let's say the student has a has a bio, a bio degree that they didn't do super great in. And so they went into a bio master's program. Mm -hmm. And the problem, the problem with, with the, the grading system of graduate schools, you make a couple of C's in graduate school, you're gone. You're, Mm -hmm. you you know, you make two or three C's and and you're not going to hang around. So people don't get 2.0s in graduate school because they're gone. Um, they, they're going to, they're going to get, uh, the, so the consequence of that, at least in the, in the view of the admissions committees often is that it's not an issue of grade inflation. It's just the reality of what graduate school is like. Yeah. Um, and that, but that, the, 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 the function of that, the reality of that is that, you know, pretty much if you're in a graduate program and you make it all the way through, you're going to have above a three O. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so, but that's not like a 3.0 in, gra- in undergrad programs, you know, yeah. a 3.0 is, is, not, so I, so I don't think it's really the issue of fairness. I think it's, it's, uh, trying to be equitable to everybody in the process and also trying to figure out what does this really mean? What does this graduate work really
0: mean? Yeah.
1: Cause a, a huge portion, at least in the sciences uh, graduate programs in the sciences a huge portion of that uh, is research in, in lab work. You're not, you know, you're not taking tests. You're not writing papers. You're in the lab and you're doing stuff in the lab. So, so it's a, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different because of that as
0: well. Makes sense.
1: Cool. Yeah.
0: Next question. Do you need to go to a post-bac if your GPA is above 375 and are a career changer? Only need classes in OCHEM, GenCHEM, and BIO. I would say no. So, so I I think, um, the, the answer is technically yes. Right. If, if they're a career changer, you need classes, you need, you need post back classes. Well, Um, I,
1: yeah, I was interpreting (laughs) this as a post back. program.
0: No, I, I know. Um, but yeah, so, so obviously the, the OCHEM, those classes that are needed are going to be post back classes, but. Right, a, right, a right. formal formal postback in this situation, yeah. not. Needed. I
1: would just say, you know, if you've got a GPA that's three seven five or, or greater, then just go to your local, whatever your local university is, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and do the classes as a postback there. Now, the downside to that is the financial issue, and that is as a as just a non degree seeking postback student, you can't get any financial aid. No federal aid. Uh, you're going to get maybe limited amount of of institutional aid, but that's pretty iffy as well. Yeah. So if you're in a financial situation where you've got to have, um, you know, you, you've got to have uh, aid, whether it's student loans or institutional aid or a Pell Grant or some sort of state grant, wherever you're wherever you are. Then you have to enroll. You, you end up at most universities. What you end up having to do is declare a major, and be officially degree seeking. Quote air quotes there. <laughs> and, then out, seeking, like the and
0: then drop out like half of the students do you anyway. And drop out,
1: which which institutions hate that because it it hurts their retention uh, yep. level and their graduation rates and stuff. But from a student perspective. That's if that's what you got to do. That's what you got
2: to
0: do. Yeah. Which which goes like to me, it's like, well, if 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 schools are going to be that restrictive and the financial aid laws, right, are going to be that restrictive. Right. That students can find this loophole that's readily available (laughs) almost everywhere. Yeah. Then just make it easy for the students to be non degree seeking students. I know. it's ridiculous. Yeah, and then it doesn't hurt the schools. The schools should be advocating the government for these this financial oh, aid reform because yeah, it, it, it it looks bad on the schools that these students are dropping out. I, I, it's probably not that big of a an issue for them to to worry about it, but we seem to talk yeah. about it a lot. So it, yeah. it's obviously happening.
1: Yeah. Oh, it happens a lot because <laughs> they don't have a choice. Exactly. You know, that's what they got to do. So. Yeah.
0: I, I had a, a brilliant follow up question to that that uh, that that kind of went away from me, so that's that's okay. Oh, that's all right.
1: It's what happens when you get older. <laughs>
0: that's okay. I have pandemic brain. <laughs> um, any good interview tips, practically for virtual slash Zoom calls? Any good interview tips mm. in general? So I, I'll lead you, off here. Yeah, you run with this. Yeah. Yeah. So I I did uh, uh, actually I did a podcast a couple weeks ago on the pre-med years, uh, all about virtual interviews, talking about things like lighting, although my my forehead's a little shiny here, I didn't put on my makeup. Uh, Talking about lighting, talking about uh, checking your internet speeds and and where to Mm -hmm. be for that, how to face the window versus um, having your back towards the window, Uh, making sure that you reboot your computer before you jump on a call to make sure everything is nice and fresh and ready to rock. Using apps, like uh, if you're on a Mac, an app called Trip Mode, T-R-I-P-M-O-D-E, to basically cut off internet access to everything except what you specifically need it for. camera placement uh making sure that it's at or just above eye level where most people have their laptop on a table and the camera's looking up their nostrils mm-hmm. and i'm like hey how you doing up there nostrils yeah. um so lo- just lots of little things like that um that i covered in that podcast and then i obviously have uh it's i don't know it's a little book called the pre playbook guide to the medical school interview yep that uh, students can can find everywhere um yeah so I mean, interview tips in general and anything uh, from your end, having been on the med school side of things, having been on the, the yeah, I mean, you know, the, the,
1: vir- the virtual interview is new, of course. So yep. this, this is very unusual in the past. It does occur a, a little bit every now and then, but generally speaking, it's, this is new stuff. And I think schools are really starting to see that it's it's very doable, and and I would say, I would expect that that some schools may go to this intentionally uh, in the future because it's cheaper for the students and it's uh, easier to deal with for the for the school as well. In a lot in a lot of ways, it it also provides some uh, complications, but. Um yeah, I mean exactly what you said, Ryan. All, all that stuff I, I think is very, uh, very good. One of the things that I, you know, I think in, in terms of environment, what you have to do is be careful about who else is around. You know, is my our mom and dad, our roommates around? Do you have pets that are going to? You know, you got to think of all the the details with regard to what else is happening in your in your place, wherever you're doing that. Um, to make sure that you're minimizing as much as possible uh, any any distractions that you would have or that the interviewer might have. Um, so you know, if cat's if going to be walking across the table, then put cat in you know put cat somewhere else in a box or you know do something else with cat for a while. Uh, or you know, make sure that mom and dad or roommates or whatever are gone. Uh, I need to room to myself, I need the house to myself for the next hour and or for this hour particularly on a given day. So I need everybody, I need everybody to, to be gone. So um, so little stuff like that, I think, in addition to what you said, Ryan, is really important to not only to to help with the nerves of the students, but also distractability for the student and the and the interviewer. Yeah.
0: Exactly.
1: Not everybody has a fancy, um, uh, you know, a fancy basement <laughs> studio.
0: Yeah, but, but what most people don't know is that in my fancy basement studio, the, the ceilings are unfinished. And so every sound, like footstep going over like on the floor, just transmits. So actually on Mondays when I'm doing all this recording, my my wife takes our two kids over to her parents' house who have also been uh, isolating as well for this pandemic. And so the house is empty so I can actually do this. Yeah, <laughs> so okay. I'm doing what students should be doing. Make sure that yep. your environment is set up yep. for what you need. And I, I turn off the air conditioning cause it's right here so that the house is just sweltering hot when I go upstairs after. And my wife hates that, but it's what I got to do.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, How old is too old to include for volunteer hours? I've done some more recently, but the volunteering that actually impacted me the most I did back in 2012-ish time frame. I love these non trads Oh, wow. They make it hard. Right, so so general rule of thumb, right? We talk about this general rule of thumb is anything after high school.
1: Correct. That's correct. 2012,
0: as we're recording this, is eight years ago.
1: Yeah, eight years ago. And that's a long time. Yep. And uh, if and now, in your, now, can you put the question back up? I, I wanted to see there was some part. So it says it actually says, but the volunteering that actually impacted me the most. Now yep. I'm going to center in on that for a yep. second. Uh, now what I'm assuming is that there's been other voluntary experiences since 2012, and that. The 2012 experience is just the most impactful. So you want to really focus on on it and the meaning it had to you, the value within your your, your journey, uh, etc. Now, conversely, if if you haven't done a whole lot since 2012, that's problematic. Um, that, that could be a real issue uh because the admissions committee is gonna say, what you know, what have you been doing? Yep. Uh, so it, it there needs to be a little bit more fleshed out here in terms of this question um, to understand exactly where the student's coming from. But I would say, um, you know, I would say it's great to talk about the 2012 thing, but in isolation that that's going to be problematic if there's not been some level of, of volunteer work since then.
0: Yeah. So let's, let's assume there is volunteer work since then mm-hmm. that, yeah this 12,000 and 12,000, this 2012, uh, experience was super impactful. I, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't put it on there.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah,
0: I, I think, totally agree with that. I think yeah. if this was just an activity and you're like, Oh, I need to put everything in there. Like if in an, an, and it wasn't an, an impactful experience, that would be the first one I would probably cut out if yeah. you're trying to make yeah. space.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. I think, you know, what they're looking for is this meaningful the, the so what part and uh, yep. this is this is a chief a really good example of focusing in on where's the so what that that's really standing out and that you want to really emphasize and if that's 2012 then
0: so be it yep exactly where's the so what that's the shirt that's what we're doing mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, is being a telephonic medical interpreter considered a clinical experience? What about in person medical interpreter? First of all, I'm excited that they actually use the right terminology, medical Not interpreter, translator. instead yeah. of medical translator. So that's good. Um, so, in person medical interpreter versus in virtual, conference. yeah, phone medical yeah. interpreter. Yeah. yeah. Thought there?
1: Well, I would say. Well, this is a hard one, I think, because I I would generally say that the virtual is not clinical experience, but that the in person could be clinical in nature. And the reason I differentiate between the two is that if you're there in person, you're in the environment. You're there with the patient, you're there with the healthcare provider, you're you're seeing everything, you're involved in everything. Maybe I'm. Maybe that's too, too fine of a differentiation between what's happening on the telephone, um, and and so I don't know. I I would say, I mean, I would probably err toward calling it clinical, uh, because you're dealing with patient, you're dealing with the healthcare provider, you're the intermediary between the two in terms of, in terms of stuff like that. So, yeah. So. Let me reverse myself. Yeah, they're clinical. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Ryan?
0: I I think they're clinical. I I think, um, you're you're the one interacting directly with the patients, yeah. the physicians. Obviously, a telephone interpreter is right. is outside of that direct environment, but I don't I don't think it takes away a ton from the experience. I, I would not lean on that. If, if the majority of that experience is a telephone interpreter, I wouldn't lean on that as your majority experience slash only right. clinical experience. I, I think you still need to try to get into the hospitals and, and be around patients and make sure that you're okay with the smells and the sounds and the, just the whole sensation of being uh, all of the just sensory overload of being in a hospital. But uh, yep. yeah, yep. I, I think that's,
1: yeah, that's I, I agree with that. I agree. I target myself
0: into it. (laughs) Good job. I'm glad you got there. (laughs) I knew you would. I I was rooting for you. (laughs) Uh, Is now a good time? So now, meaning we're recording this on September 14th. Is now a good time to start writing my application essay if I'm applying next cycle? What are some common mistakes that you see students make when writing their essays? What makes an essay unique? So I talked about my personal or my uh, interview book earlier. Now I get to talk about my personal statement book, uh, which needs to be updated. I haven't updated it with um, the new Acomas character count, but um, so my my general advice is: don't start writing your personal statement until January of the year you're applying writing it too early you're you're leaving out a lot of potential amazing experiences that are going to go wow like that was awesome I definitely need to talk about that so wait wait to start writing your personal statement and we're only a couple months away and so you're like oh it's close enough I'll start it great go ahead um, common mistakes scott
1: yeah i think i think common mistakes are being too formal in your writing. Mm. Um, I think that students often don't shift out of the writing a paper for school mode. And so they write in the same voice, in the same language and with the same sort of um, emphasis on certain aspects of the, the, structure of the, of the essay. And, um, and I, you know, I think it's much more of a storytelling essay than it is a a formal writing exercise. And now, now that's not to say that you, you get too casual, but it is to say, um, I, what I like to be able to hear in my head when I'm reading a personal statement is I like to be able to hear the person saying it. Mm you know, the, the, them talking it yeah. out. And if I can't hear that, if it's so like formalized and there's all these <laughs> it's like words, Shakespearean. There, <laughs> yeah. And there's all these words, like, did they just like spew up a thesaurus or what? Yeah. what's going on here? That's a real turnoff to me. That doesn't tell me who you are and really give me a sense of, of, of your personality a little bit. And, and yeah. so I think that's a common, uh, a, a somewhat common mistake is that students, you know, try to be too hoity-toity or whatever uh, the right word is in yep. uh, in their in their language, and I think you just kind of just be you. And you know, within the context of balance between, I mean, you can't get too casual, um, but you, I, I do think you you want to be uh, clear that it's coming from your voice, um, and uh, and let that tell your story.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely agree. <clears throat> and that's the, the the whole point of my book. I think some students, when I came out with the the personal statement book, they're like, which one should I get, the interview book or the personal statement book? And I'm like, well, they're two different books, but if you could only get one, get the personal statement book, because I think in that book, I do a better job of really helping the student understand their story so that they can yeah. they can tell it and not yeah. come off fake and super right. thesaurus if that's a word. Right. <laughs> I like that. The y Ah, man. Rockin' and a-rollin'.
1: Rockin' and a-rollin'.
0: Ooh, I'm excited you picked this one. So, I've recently done shadowing with a new org called Web Shadowers. How will virtual shadowing be viewed if put on an app, and how should this be put on an app? So, we've talked about virtual shadowing now. A 1,000 times. Um, yeah. But now that there there are these official, in air quotes, official kind of shadowing opportunities. So virtualshadowing.com is one. This web shadowers is another one. And then I'm actually launching one uh, on September 28th. So in two weeks, um, every Monday at 8 Eastern, uh, eshadowing.com. So um, I I think there is... Um, I, I think there's a spectrum and, and it, it's going to depend, obviously the, the caveat is the medical schools are going to treat it how the medical schools are going to want to treat it. So, um, I have some plans in place, just kind of talking about my own vision of this. And I, I, I know virtualshadowing.com does this a little bit as well. Um, where they have a quiz associated with each of the sessions and you have to take the quiz within a certain amount of time and you can get credit in that way. Um, I'm actually going to, and, and I'm, we're still working through the technology at this point, the, but I'm working on uh, a platform that will take attendance and you have to meet a certain threshold, like you have to be there 80% of the time or something <clears throat> to actually get credit for that as well as potentially take a quiz. And and I'm hoping that having those increased um and the barriers isn't the right word, but but qualifications for actually getting credit from me from eshadowing.com or wh- wherever it's going to come from. Um I I hope that it it lends a little bit more credibility and uh, along with that we're doing um uh we're doing, I'll be reaching out to medical schools directly. My team will be to go, hey, like this e-shadowing thing is here. Um, Here's what we're doing to be able to give credit to students. So if they apply with this credit, understand that here are the hoops that they jumped through for that credit. Just to to give it a little bit more credibility. But at the end of the day, again, the schools are going to do what they want to do.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think we've talked about this uh, over and over again when this topic comes up. That uh, the question, "How will virtual shadowing be viewed if put on an application?" Well, there's no if you you put it on the application. Yep. You don't. There's no if if you put it on. You put it on there, and then the med schools are going to do whatever they're going to do. But they understand the reality of life in the pandemic. Yep. Uh, they get it. They're doing everything virtually too. And, uh, uh, so I, I think that you have to, you, you have to connect with that idea that you are not in a vacuum. You're in the middle of a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic that everybody is dealing with exactly the same stuff. And, uh, and so uh, the med schools are going to realize that and they're going to, they're going to see that, you know, you, you took the initiative, you're doing some stuff even if it is uh, virtual shadowing or you're, you're, you're trying to do whatever you can do. And I think that's going to have a lot of credibility attached to it because, uh, you know, there's going to be some inevitably, some students are going to say, well, I couldn't do anything. So I didn't know, blah, blah. blah. Yeah. And uh, they're not going to have anything. And at yeah. least, you know, students that are doing this, they're, they're taking the initiative. They're, they're doing what they can do. So.
0: That's an interesting way to think about it, right? If, if, during this time, during the pandemic, where shadowing, clinical experience, all that is kind of out the window, and students are going to be applying the next few cycles, and this block of time is going to be pretty empty from a clinical, from a out-in-the-world experience outside of if you have a job already in the hospital, um, that seeing the, the eShadowing.com on there is, is probably not going to be like, oh, my God, look at that. That's an amazing experience. But not seeing it, because it's going to hopefully uh-huh. be common, not seeing it is going to go,
1: why didn't Red you flag. do that? Why, mm-hmm. Red flag. Yeah. Yep. Why, Absolutely.
0: We knew that you couldn't do anything else. Why didn't you at least do that? So Make an
1: effort. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I, I completely agree with that. 100%. Any...
0: Uh, or, or are are podcasting and traveling good hobbies for an application? I'm not a huge hobby person. I enjoy working and school most of the time. All right, so let me reframe the question, Scott. Uh, this student is saying, "Tell me what I should uh, start. Tell me what hobby I should start to help with my application." That's what it sounds like. Right. And it's super yeah. common. Like I'm not making fun of it, yeah, but it's yeah. a super no, no. common way to frame a question. And I always yeah. I always reframe the question when I know the heart of the question is tell me what I should do to make my application better. And I'm like, what you're asking me is is basically you want me to tell you how to be. And right. you need to be you.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I agree with that completely. I think that um, you know, hobby is an interesting word. Uh, what one person calls a hobby, another person might not see as a hobby. Or, yeah. you know, so I think that's kind of a loaded word that has different connotations to different people.
0: Yeah, so, my like, hobby is starting people, new podcasts and businesses. <laughs> yeah, there you go. A-
1: <laughs> there you go. And you know, mine is sitting my butt in front of the television and watching, you know, shows on TV now. No <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I, I think that you have to examine what do you do and what do you enjoy doing and just talk about that. Yep. If you like reading, talk about reading, what you get out of reading. If you like, you know, walking outside, you know, and you like the being outdoors, talk about that. You know, you just have to really think about what is it that I enjoy doing? Because these types of questions, which typically come up sometimes in the primary application, uh, often they come up in secondaries as well where uh medical schools want to know you know what do you do when you're not studying or working you know and uh and and i think what they're trying to figure out is are you a three-dimensional person Do you have Mm -hmm. interests Do you have things that you just like to do Do you just like to go out and hang out with friends and what do you get out of that you know what what is it that why is that meaningful to you and uh, it's the so what part it's not necessarily the what i do woodworking the question is what do you get out of that? What What does that provide to you that you don't get from any other activity? <laughs> yeah. um,
0: may, you know, you, maybe the example hiking. that you just just gave with woodworking. I'm like, I don't know if I got much out of it, but I lost a couple things. <laughs> yeah, right. It. I lost my fingers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I, you know, I, I think again, don't don't overthink it. Just think about what What do I enjoy doing? And uh, if that's cooking, you know. Talk about cooking. What, yeah. what is it that you know? Why do you enjoy cooking? If it's playing cards with friends, or you know, whatever yeah. it is that you enjoy, I, I would suspect that this person, uh, the, the 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 person that asked this question, I, I would guess that if you thought a little bit more broadly, you may not define cooking as a hobby, but if you enjoy cooking, then you talk about it. Yeah. If you enjoy. Uh, playing board games with friends at a, at you know at a get together, then then talk about that. What it what that does for you? What's what's the what's the value of that to you? And uh, and uh, you know it's a relationship building. It's you know whatever it is, and uh, and and that's what you're talking about. You, you know yeah, maybe playing board games isn't a hobby, but if it's in what you enjoy, then talk about
0: it. Yes, exactly.
1: This is a long one.
0: Does every activity I include on my app have to be continuous? For example, I was part of the student government at my college during my first year, and it was an amazing experience where I learned a lot. However, I did not continue after my second year because that was not my true passion. Would it show a lack of commitment if I include this experience? I don't think so. I would would say that every experience has to stop at some point, or else you're never going to go to medical school. So... (laughs) Yeah. yeah I, I, mean, I, I think that the continuous part that, that kind of comes up a lot is like the one day you went to the soup kitchen, like yeah, probably yeah, don't yeah. put that on your application. <laughs> right. And it goes back to what you always say too, is the so what, like mm-hmm. you spent two years, freshman, sophomore year, um, in student government. So what, what did you learn from it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my guess is that in student government, like, I was in student government when I was in college and, uh, you, know, you learn a lot about leadership. You learn a lot about working together with people who have very different viewpoints on, you know, whatever. And, uh, and so I think that there's a lot of so what in student government. And, and I think if, if, if it wasn't your true passion and you wanted to move on from that, then you just say that, you know, I really enjoyed it. I learned a whole lot. Here's what I learned. But all, at the end of the day, I, I decided I wanted to move on from that and, and do some other stuff. So.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: I don't think it shows a lack of commitment.
0: No, not at a- all at
1: all. no
0: not that not that specific um, mm-hmm. example at least. No. Mm-hmm. yeah, and and I think I, I think we get to a point as as humans, as pre-meds, where our interests change, and so we yeah. have to continuously explore new things and don't fear the the reaper on the other side of that medical school application to go oh you guys only did two year two years of this that's not continuous enough like if you're miserable doing what you're doing change and if you have to explain it later explain it later
1: yeah agreed
0: hi guys any thoughts on whether or not the new 2021 mcat will be shortened or full length Oh, got any uh, secret, um, no. secret inside info with the double AMC? Uh, um, the the double AMC yeah. has has said that it will return to a normal test next year. Whether it does or not, nobody knows. But that is what they have said.
1: Yeah, I, I don't have any
0: insight on this question, Yeah.
1: I, you know, the double is going to do whatever they're going to
0: do. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs>
2: It's Rachel chiming in. I totally agree, Scott, with what you just said. What I wanted to say for our listeners and anyone watching is um, if you don't have Twitter, get Twitter, if only to follow the AMC MCAT account because that is the only place they really make social media updates. Um, For the last several years, it was usually this week that the next year's test dates got announced. So typically in mid-September, we get the January to August or September dates for the next year. And then typically in mid-October, we get the actual registration. And I've been checking AAMC MCAT on Twitter every single day and haven't seen a peep. And usually they at least, like, hint something's coming. So I've been wondering, like, you know, what's going on? They're not even telling us it's coming. What's brewing? Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I don't – I. They said it would be shortened. I'm taking them at their word, but we'll we'll see.
0: We <laughs> shall see. Yeah. Surprise, they're canceling the MCAT forever.
2: <laughs> Somebody out there just went, "Wait, what?" Wait, what? No.
0: <laughs> JK That was LOL. Dr.
2: Grey being <laughs> funny. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, that doesn't seem pretty equitable to only release for via Twitter. No, it is not. Uh,
2: it is absolutely ridiculous. The good news is here at MAPS, we'll keep an eye out on it and we'll tell Mapped members. <laughs> but yep. for the general public, I want to yep. make sure people know that's the best way to get it. I can,
0: I, I can actually, we should just build an automation whenever the AAMC MCAT thread uh, or account tweets, we should just post it into the MAPS group. That's a good idea. Just copy it right in. Automatically,
2: okay. somebody automagically. listening says score. Score. <laughs>
0: score. Oh, cool! I think we've come to the end of our questions today. Yep. Again, yep. thank you all for being a part of Mapped this journey, fifteen hundred strong almost, so if not past it already today. Um, if you haven't seen yet, as you as you're watching this live, uh, if you haven't seen yet, uh, Mapped. Just announced today our one-on-one advising with Dr. Scott Wright. Um, and through the end of the week here, September 14th through the 18th, uh, we have 20% off. Just go to the website. Uh, obviously, if you're listening to this as a recording, the advising is still there, but the discount likely will not be. So, um, But if you need some help, Dr. Scott Wright, the man, the myth, the legend. This is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.